Today's episode of Art of the Cut is sponsored by ncrawl.com. ncrawl is the web-based platform for managing and rendering end credits, used by over 1,000 film productions, including 42 films at this year's Sundance 2020 Film Festival. Sign up today at ncrawl.com slash AOTC. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cuts Voices from Sundance. My name is Steve Hullfish. I'm a film editor, and I interview my colleagues in film and TV. Today's Voices from Sundance are director-editor Shalini Kantaya and one of her other two editors, Alexander Gilway. Editor Zachary Lundisher was unable to be part of the interview. Kintaya's previous work includes directing the season finale of Nat Geo's Breakthrough, also the films Catching the Sun, A Drop of Life, and On the Lot. Editor Alex Gilwitt has previously worked on the TV series Finding Your Roots, The Seedlings, and is currently working on the TV series Ghost Girl. Our discussion today is about the Sundance documentary Coded Bias. I'll let Shalini describe the film to you. Uh, which voice belongs to whom? Who am I talking to today? I'm Shalini. I'm the director of the film, and um on the other line is uh, Alex Gilwitt, who is editor. We both are editors, and Zachary Ludesher uh, could be with us today. Hello, I'm the other voice. Hi, Alex. How are you? Good. How are you? Your documentary was one of the ones that fascinated me at Sundance, and I didn't get a chance to see it. Tell everybody kind of what the documentary is about and what was the genesis of that project. So the film um, follows Joy Bolamini, who's an MIT media researcher. And she discovers quite by accident that most facial recognition technology does not see dark faces or women with as much accuracy. And the film follows her as she sort of uncovers bias in in the algorithms that impact so many of our uh, choices in life and sort of her push uh, for the first ever governance in the U.S. that would govern against these algorithms. Very interesting. And how did you become attached to the project? Um, I'm kind of like a sci-fi fanatic and um, tech geek and love reading about uh, disruptive technology. And I came across uh, Joy's work and the work of Kathy O'Neill, um, their TED Talks of the TED Fellow, and, um, and sort of thought that there was as I, as I sort of saw the talks of Zainab Chisaki and Kathy O'Neill and Joy, I thought that there was a story there. And that's kind of how it, um, sort of what set me down the rabbit hole. Got it. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of the methods that you use to tell the story. Is it kind of like a detective story? Is Were you following, you know, going to multiple agencies and kind of trying to understand what was going on? It feels very much like a hero's journey. It really follows Joy and her transformation from trying to make an art project work to speaking before Congress to push for the first ever legislation that would govern facial recognition. So in that sense, I was quite lucky that my character had such a big arc um, sort of built into the film. Um, and so the work really began with those two characters, Kathy O'Neill and, and Joy Bonamini. And so um, many of the experts and, and data scientists and mathematicians in my film, not only are they incredibly astute, I think there's six or seven PhDs in the film, but they're also sort of women or outsiders or people of color, you know, often had some sort of marginalized identity 
that allows them to have a different perspective on these technologies, you know, had an identity where these systems weren't um, optimizing for them and, and sort of are able to shed this unique insight into this tech, into the dark underbelly of, of big tech. So tell me about a little bit about building that story. Both of you guys can probably speak into this of um, what were the resources that you had, you know, interviews, B-roll, uh, Verite stuff, and then how did you organize that within the NLE so that you could, or, or did you have a really clear idea of the, of the story from the beginning? Not at all. I think that I did those first interviews, and they were really seminal interviews very early in the process. And I think I did those interviews as much to investigate and to learn as anything else. And I, and I tend to interview long, um, sometimes two hours, uh, which seems like a long time, at least my DP says it's long. And so basically I began to assemble that footage. And then, you know, as I build trust, because, you know, there's also the process of building trust. It's a very unique relationship that a documentary director has with their subjects, which is the process by which you learn, you sort of earn their trust. And so with Joy, it was much easier to sort of sit down for a formal interview before I could sort of work my way into other aspects of her life. Um, and then Alex Zachary, uh, who is our, our, our other editor, is an amazing visual effects sort of um, supervisor and thinker and um, also an editor that I've had a long collaboration with. Um, he also was one of the editors on my prior feature, Catching the Sun. And so he came in and we would sort of like assemble themes. And I would do, my knowledge of Premiere is actually quite crude. And there's like, you know, a handful of things that I can do in the edit. But I find that so much of, a, of the work of writing a documentary happens in that process. So I tend to sort of assemble a lot of the interviews, especially because a lot of them were very sophisticated ideas that I was trying to bite, sort of bring down to very bite-sized, um, sort of bite-sized, digestible, you know, hopefully entertaining um, concepts. And so that was a whole process The first, you know, sort of, you know, the amount of research that you have to do and then sort of translating that. And then this other obstacle, which is that the subject matter is you have to sort of make the invisible visible. And so, um, you know, having two editors like Zachary and Alex who have this wonderful vocabulary where they're able to work between the edit and visual effects was really important. And so um, I came on, you know, I sort of would work on the mega structure and then Alex and Zachary would do scene work and visual effects uh, sort of seamlessly. I don't, I don't know if it felt seamlessly for Alex, but um, they, <laughs> it was seamless for me. I was just thinking I couldn't say that better. <laughs> I think that she... <laughs> Got it. <laughs> how did you, uh, Alex, tell me how you guys um, work together since you've got a uh, director that is also uh, editing. Um, I've worked on those projects as well where a director edits, and how does that relationship, uh, how does the collaboration work between the two of you? It was, you know, we got to know each other really well <laughs> over a really short period of time, considering, and we just, like, learned how to communicate. I think that, like, 
at first I was working remotely and we realized that that wasn't really working out. So we like decided that it would be better for me to work in her apartment. And we sort of just like would talk through everything together or, or she'd like have me sit for a while and she'd watch it. And she has like her own, like she's coming at it from a different angle because she shot everything and she knows everything so well that like I might miss something or I might not, I would not see what she was trying to do. And so she'd come in and be like, Oh wait, I really love this shot because this shot shows this. Or I like this part of the interview because this part a part does this. And so it was rough at first and then it worked its way through pretty quickly. And uh, it's interesting that you started working remotely. How were you, uh, how were the two of you working remotely or the three of you, I guess? Um, well, Zachary actually had to go off because he had a baby. So um, Shawnee convinced me to quit my job and come on her project. And she handed me a big hard drive. And at first she was like just giving me footage and I was cutting verite scenes at my apartment and sending her like the, cause we both had the same premiere project. So I would send her the premiere project and she would look at everything. And then like after about two weeks, we were like, this is not going to work. We need to like, work faster basically <laughs> well it, it worked <laughs> yeah it worked when um alex i was in the field actually shooting so alex oh, yeah. was working remotely and sort of doing the first assembly of the scene but then yeah. we got to a point where we i needed to communicate you know in much more detail and sort of roughing it out and giving rough notes wouldn't be sufficient. And so also, I had to wait to come back from the field to do that um, sort of process. And then I think because this film has so much visual effect, you had to have so much conversation about, is this possible? Is this not possible? Is this going to take you a lot of time? Because there were ideas that I was trying to communicate, and I didn't know if they would work until we tried them in visual effects. And so I think Alex having that vocabulary was really very helpful to the project. And uh, you were working in Premiere. Were you passing stuff back and forth between After Effects, or were you working so with something else? Um, no, I usually would put, like, a dynamic link in the After Effects file and then send the project file, or would just, like, export the whole project and after the whole uh, sequence and after effects and bring it in sent all of that over with like the media and for a while we all had had the same drive and we would just cross the project file back and forth and that was sort of a shorthand of us sharing files because there was so much work going on at the same time Tell me a little bit about the process of finding the story and as you got like a first rough cut, the first time you had something from the beginning of the story to the end of the story, how long was that? And then what did you have to restructure? <laughs> I always say that because um, I feel like I call it, I call it the dark night of the soul and dark documentary. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think everyone in who's ever cut a documentary film would agree with you on that. That's a great term. You, and, you, and you might be is, able to sell some T-shirts. <laughs> well, what it is is it's the process in the documentary where the film doesn't work, and because you know making documentary where you're following a character over time and waiting for something to happen, and you're trying to make meaning of a, a you know sort of a subject that's unfolding rapidly because sum up the dark night of the soul of documentary can be like two years of your life 
<laughs> because because it takes that long to sort of have faith and know you're sort of for me it's a process of sort of writing shooting editing and then writing again um from the transcript of what you actually sh shot so i do work a lot from the transcript it was very challenging because these were ideas that we didn't really have language. I'm talking about bias and artificial intelligence and trying to make it sort of bar stool conversation, like literally stuff that you can talk about over beer. And so that was really, really challenging. The thing that I felt that I had going for me was my, my main character, um, Joy. And she was just, I think, energetic, not who you an unlikely character that's what you want in a documentary i think one of the best things about documentaries is you sort of make a hero out of an everyday person um and and for me joy is totally that and um and also it was a little bit of luck i think when when she went to congress i felt there was there's an arc here i felt there is that is the climax of the scene, and this is the story from this sort of haphazard artist who couldn't make, you know, like her art project work to testifying before Congress and, you know, impacting policy. And I think when we did that scene, I knew, I just also didn't know how we would get there. And it also was this very tender balance between, you know, sort of the verite story and the exposition and I think that's where we relied on editors um, Alex and I did a test screening which was really important for us um, and then we got smart people to give us notes and I would sort of listen and if one person said it I would sort of talk it away the three people said it, it's okay and actually <laughs> you know reading before Sundance we restructured um, and to also say that um, my story editors also played a really important role in the structuring of the film. Um, working with Sabine Hoffman, my co-producer, who's also um, an amazing editor of her own right, and um, Christopher Stewart. And basically, you know, it's with them that I would sort of do the sort of broad structural work, because everything happens so quickly in our post-production process. And so basically, laying out note cards like a scene very much like you would lay out a narrative structure only you know it's backwards you're shooting it you know and, and writing it after <laughs> we'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with coded bias director shalini kantaya and editor alex gilwitt i'm really excited to have ncrawl as a sponsor if you've ever been through the end credits process in final post you already know why someone had to create this product. What's interesting, though, is how they went about it. Their cloud render engine turns around preview renders in minutes and 2K and 4K renders in about half an hour. The Ncrawl render engine is on demand 24-7, so even if you're in a late-night editing session, you can sign into your project, fix that typo, and add that late-breaking special thanks, and with one click, get your new render fast. And here's the best part. Renders are unlimited. Ncrawl has a freemium tier, and they offer free personal demo projects to all working industry professionals. Right now, there's actually a wait list, but if you sign up now with our special link, you can jump to the front of the line. That's ncrawl.com AOTC. Again, that's ncrawl.com AOTC. 
And now, back to my interview with Coded Bias Director Shalini Kantaya and Editor Alex Gilwick. Alex, uh, what did you learn from some of those screenings, or what were some of the notes that you, you know, helped either say yay or nay, you know, or Shalini didn't agree with it, but maybe you did? How, how do you walk that fine line with your director? I laughed before because she's so right. Like at the screening, a lot of it was most interesting to see what people were most afraid of because basically our doc is like a bunch of things that are happening real time in America and around the world and like our terrifying concepts. And so it was interesting to see the things that stood out for people. Like we need to, you need to keep that in. You could get rid of this. The biggest one is we, we both had a lot of fights over this one scene wanting to keep this one Facebook scene in, which I guess when you see the film, it'll make sense. <laughs> I don't think it's made it to the end. Um, uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Shelly and I both went back and forth a lot, whether to keep this one big Facebook scene where it, like, talks about elections. And it and basically we watched, we showed it to a test screening and asked them, and I think a few people liked it, but I think that we ended up chopping it. Is that what happened to Shelly? <laughs> I, I'm just laughing because the same scene is still on the chopping block. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like um, yes. we, 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 we remastered the film between Sundance and, and South by, and the same film, <laughs> the same scene is in question. And I almost yeah. remastered the film with and without that scene. And it, it, I think we're, it's it, going it, to kill Shalini, that scene. <laughs> I think that as a director, I just want to be careful about how much exposition you give. Documentary plays different to different audiences, and I think festivals and critics sort of slant towards their documentaries. But I think commercially, people will watch films if they're well done, even if they're all interviews. You've seen like films like um, Ava DuVernay's 13th, um, if it's very well done, people will watch things that are mostly interviews. But I think as a director and as someone who loves beautiful visuals, I really struggled with having too many talking heads and whether those moments, how those moments fit into the larger character narrative. And, and that balance is really hard to find. And sometimes, and that's hard because it comes often with um, how the film plays as a whole. And so finding that right balance, sometimes it takes first having a structure that works, but then also, um, you know, having enough time where you can sit back and look at your film play as a whole a couple of times to see where you can tell your, as they say, tell your babies, you know, cut things that, that need to be cut. Um, but it's an ongoing struggle, and I literally might have two masters of this film. <laughs> <laughs> I want the master with the face in it. You want it. You want it in, and and she wants it out. What is the? What is the? Uh, I want it in. What is the point of this scene, and why is there a discussion about it, and what are the arguments for and against? Is this okay to talk about, Sean? Does this give too much away of the story? I think it's okay to talk about. Okay, yeah, cool. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so the Facebook scene is basically uh, kind of a discussion on how it's easy to sort of hack the election through Facebook. And there's this, there was a, a research article that was posted where they basically, Facebook basically posted like one 
sort of little icon on the sidebar that says like how many people, how many of your friends voted that that day, and that one post brought out like 300,000 people to the polls. So it's just like kind of this like microcosm of like what they could do when they're like mad at like a candidate like maybe Elizabeth Warren or for example and like want to turn the elections against her there's a way to like kind of manipulate people into getting to the polls which is terrifying and I I wanted it in because it's terrifying and I think Shawnee wanted it in too but I but you don't want it anymore Shawnee you want to take it I'm trying to strike a balance between a character-driven narrative and exposition yeah. in the film. And without it, the film still plays. And I cut three, two minutes, and it flows. And so every sort of decision of things that I keep in the film has to be strategic. And also, it references the 2016 election, and we're coming up on 2020. And you have to think, okay, my film's going to be released after 2020 will I date it if I use this example in the film? Um, so all these things that you think about um, where you have an agonizing choice of whether you keep a scene in or not, whether it's on the special yeah. features. Um, were there structural storytelling changes in addition to just deleting stuff of moving things around, or is it a pretty linear story? Um, oh, I would say there's a lot of structural changes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, the, what were, why were some of those things changed? At 2 a.m., two days before we <laughs> delivered to Sundance, I was throwing cards in my, in, at my dining room table to restructure the film. <laughs> because we had, gotten, we had gotten sort of consistent feedback that the narrative was sort of weighted towards the back of the film. And... You know, and it was one of those things where you hear it once and you sort of tuck it back. And and then when I heard it the third time, I was like, okay, this has to happen. It has to happen before premiere. And so the first time I restructured, it didn't make sense. And I freaked out. And then I had a stomach ache at 2 a.m. And then, and then we played together. And then I sort of, I knew it worked once, but was imperfect. And then, so I think the the way that we structured, I structured it at 2 a.m. two days before ended up being what we premiered at Sundance. And the film hasn't changed that much. There's been some tweaks. But I think all of the things that I try to do right now with the narrative are tr trying to sort of strengthen the narrative arc of the character and seeing where I can pull, cut things back. Because it's such a dense film, and there's, I'm proud of it that it's so dense because... Um, it explains things, I think, very clearly and, and lets things sort of explain complex concepts in a way that's very logical and, you know, sort of, like I said, barstool conversation science. But I think as a filmmaker, it is that balance of, like, exposition and character arc and cinema. And right now, you know, I, I do always go back to sort of the hero's journey and thinking about structure. Alex, anything from you on structure and things that changed and moved in relationship to, for example, Shalini said that the narrative was weighted towards the back. What do you do to fix that so that that's no longer a note? We spent a lot of time on pacing, like a week on just pacing towards the end of the, the whole like editing, re-editing, editing process to finish the film. Um, that was a big help. And then, yeah, what Shalini said with structuring, definitely 
changed sort of the like balance of the film. Um, a kind of a funny like thing that happened too was we all the three of us had to sit and figure out where to put like two two separate scenes that we just couldn't get lock into the picture in a in a way that made sense. And I think that that was kind of like the last sort of big structural change was just like all of the three of us together sitting and watching through the film being like, oh wait, the Facebook scene can go here or the the, the Wall Street scene can go here. And the pacing issues were not micro pacing. They weren't like between, you know, how quickly somebody responds to somebody else. They were macro pacing of the entire two hours or whatever it is, right? I think it was a both. I mean, I think that in general, the scenes were pretty tight and, uh, but there was like some changes here and there, but yeah, I guess in essence, the uh, the pacing for the last half of the film needed to be uh, a little bit slower. Basically, that's the big change. My story editors and I would work on sort of like the macro structure of the scenes. And then Alex and Zadri, there was so much work to do on, I can't even tell you the amount of visual effects and shots. And so, um, you know, one of the things that Alex was great at and Zachary was great at was just something has to go here. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to communicate this idea. And, and some of it was literally like, something has to go here. What is it? And also for me, you know, who, who's probably left as astute in, in things like After Effects, it was just so great to be like, okay, is this possible? Is this possible? And sort of talking through those options. And so a lot of times we had to sort of rough things out with visual effects so I could see if I could pull off what I was trying to pull off. So it was really helpful to be able to work in draft form in the edit. And that's something Alex did very well. You mentioned story editors a couple of times. Were you guys working with transcripts and putting them into a word processing document? How were you working with your story editors? I work in two ways with the story editors. I, um, I always have a transcript of the current cut. And then I have a, a beat sheet that I usually put on cards. Then I color code those cards by character. And then I lay the cards out on my dining room table and try to make sense of the story beats. And that helps me figure out if, you know, what's missing in the structure? Am I missing a scene? Um, are we staying too long with one character? Do we need to sort of switch back to another character. So I think that helps. And then so I definitely was looking at the transcripts to grab things, to put them into the cut. But then sort of once we had a rough draft, you were, we were looking to see, you know, where we could cut things. Uh, because on the page, it's sometimes helpful to see where there are redundancies. Is there something in, that you were using inside of Premiere to be able to get you um, kind of the translation between the transcription and the actual video footage, or was it just there was time code on the transcripts? And you <laughs> just down there the was shots? no time code on the transcripts. The issue that Alex and Zachary had is that I was the main editor for a long time. And I, like I said, you know, to make a good film, I feel like the editing process takes thinking and also deep technical knowledge. <laughs> and so it was sort of spread around <laughs> in a certain way. And so I feel, um, you know, I was 
able to advance the project a lot because I'm able to edit, but I also will admit that I probably have caused a lot of issues for my editor. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so those, those things are sort of the ups and downs of working with a director who likes to get their hands dirty. And, and how did you, uh, either one of you, if you want to talk about how you organized, because with a documentary, especially something with, with interviews and then verite and then like various kind of story subplots, how did you put together bins or the projects so that you could find that stuff when you, when you knew that you needed some specific beat? Oh, where is this? So part of the problem was that, you know, Shawnee's an independent filmmaker and she couldn't afford an AE at the beginning of the project, which is completely because there should be more access to money for independent filmmakers. Um, sorry to get political. But um, so, yeah, she had to be the DIT on film shoots. She also had to direct the film shoots, produce the film shoots. And then on the other side of things, she had to be the AE as well as trying to, like, structure the film. So I wouldn't say that the project was the best organization, but she would help me a lot with pointing me in the right direction. Um, we, we figured it out, and it, it worked. And we did have an AE for a period of time. We rebuilt the project a few times. But there were errors made, and there was, like, some messiness. But I think they were, our bins were by date. Our raw footage was organized by date. Zachary and Alex tend to work more by roles and dates, and I tend to work more by sequences and string outs. And so we had differences about how we would like things to be organized, because Zachary would like things organized one way, which was more based on focusing on the roles and the raw footage. And my way of sort of working on it was to create a lot of string outs and so they had to deal with a lot of my sequences because I, I kept a lot of string outs of sort of ideas and scenes. And, and it wasn't always very well organized. Alex, any thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, was, it wasn't the best organized. <laughs> so if you were planning this project from the beginning, knowing where you ended up, what would, what would be some of the organizing principles that you would have maybe thought of? I would have made proxies. Proxies. There's a smart idea. I shot two years in 4K with no proxies, and even, and I was running a 56 terabyte drive, um, so it was quite, it was just a very big project, and so because of that, the size of it was just, it kept swelling, and then when, we, you know, we would have to keep perpetually deleting old sequences because it would cause the project to, to crash. Uh, Alex, talk to me about you. She said that you did a bunch of the Verite stuff. Talk to me about working with Verite and uh, um, how you would go about looking at, I don't know, you got however long, a, a however big a bin would be of a day of Verite. And then how do you develop that into a scene that can go into a documentary? Good question. I really like to watch everything as much as I can. And just sort of, I like to find those in-between moments. So it's, a lot of like sitting for the first day and just sort of watching through what I have. Um, hopefully it's usually a, like a, a, not so much of amount that it's like going to take me a really long time to do. And then once I have a sense of everything in there, audio and visual, then I like to just sort of like piece stuff together that way. And it's like, it's very intuitive. I'm just like, Oh yeah, I feel like 
I would love to have just a look back here. Like, I really like what they said here, and I want to include that. So, yeah, I, I think it's just like a matter of finding those, like, quiet in-between moments that are usually missed when you have, like, for example, an AE pulling select for you, and you don't get to, like, see everything. Talk to me about what kind of note-taking you're doing when you're watching something for the first time. Um, I'm really big into markers and uh, labels. So usually when I find, like, for example, a shot that I really like, I'll, like, mark it with a specific color. And I have, like, a little thing. I have, like, a little notepad where I write out what all the colors mean. So I'll mark, like, certain, like, depending on what the verite scene is, like, certain parts of the scene as a color. So I'll know which shots are for which, like, mood or whatever. And then I do markers in, like, while viewing the clip. So then I know, like, oh, this was a really great moment. Maybe you want to pull that. And I also pull selects, obviously. I like to do most of the note-taking within the project because, I don't know, it just becomes like a pile of papers in front of you and you start to forget what everything stands for and it's so much easier to just work within the project itself. Uh, and you mentioned selects. Are you cutting? Do you end up cutting from selects or do you go back to the, uh, to the raw clip to, to do your editing? Um, I actually usually pull selects into a sequence. So I'll like watch through things and if there's like a moment I really like that I know I want to bring in then I will actually just like bring it into the sequence and just like make sure I have it just you know there's when you have so much media you're going to lose something you want to make sure you have everything so I usually yeah have like a sequence of selects that I pull for myself uh Shalini do you work the same way when you're when when you were doing cutting I work a little bit more where I do like to listen to everything look at everything um, I will look at interviews and think a little bit more. I will sort of draft things in the sequence to see how they cut and sound together. Um, I like to do that more than working on the transcript. So I will first cut the interviews down because I feel like when I lose all the things that I don't need, I can hear a little bit better. And then through these very dense interviews, I can sort of hear what the few themes are and begin to sort of boil those down. Um, but it, it is very much done in premiere and through an audio process instead of on paper. Ladies, thank you so much for a really intriguing documentary and a, great, and a very interesting talk. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thanks for listening to Art of the Cut's Voices from Sundance podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. And be sure to check out my podcast of interviews with some of the world's top editors on my regular Art of the Cut podcast. Thanks again to my guests, Shalini Kantaya and Alex Gilwitt. I'm Steve Hullfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Steve Hullfish. Also, subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend. Mm-hmm.